I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about recent grants, the fate of the travel ban case, and we'll interview appellate lawyer and former Thomas Clerk, Will Consovoy. The Supreme Court met this week for its long conference, where it considered all of the petitions that were filed over the summer. Before we get into the details of what the court added to its docket, I'd like to note that this week marks the 228th anniversary of the creation of our federal courts. The Judiciary Act of 1789 established the federal court system, and the same week the Senate confirmed our first Chief Justice, John Jay, and five Associate Justices. So happy birthday to the U.S. Courts. Following its long conference, the Supreme Court announced it will add 11 cases to its schedule, including a challenge to public union, um, public employee union so-called agency shop arrangements. The case is Janus against American Federation. By way of background, the court previously granted a very similar case, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, which asked the justices to overrule a 1970s decision, Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. In Abood, the court said public employee unions, such as teachers unions, could require employees who opt out of union membership to pay what's known as a fair share or agency fee to cover the costs of collective bargaining, but they couldn't force uh, be forced to, uh, to fund political expenditures. In the Friedrichs case in 2015, a group of teachers argued that forcing them to subsidize the cost of collective bargaining over public employees' salaries and benefits is inherently political and indistinguishable from lobbying, and for that reason it violates the First Amendment. It was the perfect opportunity for the court to overrule the Abood decision, and in fact, the court had previously called into question the continued validity of Abood. But then Justice Scalia passed away, and the court tied four to four, leaving Abood in place. So now the justices will hear this latest challenge, which could uh, strike a serious blow to unions if the court overrules Abood. The court also announced it will hear Encino Motors versus Navarro for a second time. This issue, uh, the issue there is whether the overtime pay requirements of the Fair Labor Standards Act apply to service advisors at car dealerships. This case literally never goes away. Yes, it's back for its second trip at the Supreme Court. Uh, Paul Clement representing the petitioners in that case. The court will also hear a few criminal law cases, including one that deals with the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. Um, so we're joined today by Will Consovoy. Will is a partner at Consovoy McCarthy Park, a graduate of the Scalia Law School, and he clerked for Judge Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit and Justice Clarence Thomas. Will, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks for having me here. So, Will, uh, what's your favorite memory of your clerkship with Justice Thomas? Well, I guess the, the real answer is there are too many to mention. <laughs> I mean, he's really fun. He's a great boss. He's an amazing person. Uh, but you don't need me to tell you that. I think that's pretty well-known at this point. Uh, for me, though, one the memory that stands out the most would be our trip to Gettysburg at the end of our term. Uh, it's a really uh, special time with the justice. You go up there just with the law clerks and him. You take a tour of the battlefield. You spend the day together. Uh, you talk about the Civil War. You talk about the country. Uh, talk about your experience together for the year. It kind of brings it all together, it, definitely. It's a, it's a great trip. And I know every year the clerks uh, look forward to it. And every year I'm jealous that they get to go. And I, <laughs> and I, and I, I no longer do. So did you guys ride in Justice Thomas's RV up to Gettysburg? Uh, so it's, and I'll get in trouble if I don't say this, it's a bus, not an RV. Ooh, oh, uh, excuse me. And, uh, so uh, number one, number two, uh, yes. Uh, and it's awesome. <laughs> so following your clerkship, you rose to the ranks of partner at a big firm in DC, but then in 2014, you and a law school buddy started your own boutique firm. Can you tell us about your decision to leave big law? Yeah. Um, as you can imagine, for any big decision like that with your career, it's not one thing that makes you 
leave one place that you love. And I did love the firm I was at. I had an incredible experience there. I had spent almost 10 years there, both as an associate and as a partner. Uh, and I couldn't have asked for a better, you know, big firm to work at. But I reached a point where I decided that wasn't what I wanted for the rest of my career. And when you get to that point where you've got a partner a few years, you have to make some decisions about whether it's the right place for you for the long term. For a lot of reasons, I thought you know boutique was a better fit. Uh, if you look at appellate practice, it's not a surprise that it can be a really good way to proceed. You have more flexibility. Uh, you can take on more creative uh, cases. You can take on uh, inch more more creative uh, billing arrangements. Uh, you know you just have a lot more flexibility. And it gave us the chance to, you know, work for ourselves, build a business, which has been more exciting and interesting than I imagined. Uh, you know, the practice of law is one thing. <laughs> Learning how to run a small business is another. So it's been it was we were looking for a challenge and, we, and I think we found it. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of creative choices, um, you run a clinic at the Scalia Law School where students are able to get involved in Supreme Court cases. And as a disclaimer, Tiffany and I are both graduates of Will's Clinic. But don't worry, we won't make you tell us which one of us was your favorite. <laughs> Good, because I, I would plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, um, what do you think, uh, what's the value to students and, and also to the Supreme Court bar of these uh, Supreme Court clinics that are popping up at a lot of schools? And in fact, one Supreme Court clinic got another grant today. Yeah, that's right. Not a surprise. I mean, I think when you look at the landscape, the clinic, we were not certainly the first to enter it. Uh, you, you know, Tom Goldstein had, was one of the early people. There are others as well, Yale, Stanford, uh, to name two. Uh, Virginia as well. Uh, and we saw what they were doing. Uh, we saw that one, they were getting involved in cases that did not have uh, experienced Supreme Court practitioners involved. Two, it, at least to my mind, was adding and helping the justices with these cases. Um, different people can agree or disagree on whether you know a concerted Supreme Court bar is a good thing or a bad thing. I tend to think that having people who are familiar with the court uh, who are familiar with the briefing, who are familiar with what the justices are looking for, uh, helps the parties. Uh, but I understand other people don't agree with that. So we looked at it and we said, this is a, a good thing. We had a great relationship with our law school, then George Mason, now Scalia. Um, go Patriots. Go Patriots. <laughs> and um, we thought there was an opportunity. And one area where we thought there was um, an underdeveloped participation by the clinics was uh, on the state side. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we saw a lot of the clinics focusing on, particularly in criminal cases, uh, the what I would call the petitioner side or the the um, the, con the convicted side, uh, and that's great. And I, you know, I'm all for the clinics helping them out. But I think there are some states as well who don't have solicitor generals or didn't at that, at that time, um, and we saw a chance to maybe help them. And that's been an area that's been been. Uh, Worthwhile for us. Represented Louisiana a couple times. Represented Colorado, North Dakota. So it's been a good, good experience for our students. So how do you find clients for the clinic? That's a secret. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's there's no mystery to it. Uh, you know, in the early days, you're reaching out to people. You're letting them know you're there. You're explaining what you can offer. Uh, you're watching the docket. You're watching uh, as cases proceed through the cert process, or you watch. It's no, there's no. There's no secret to it anymore. I think what's been encouraging, though, and what we were hoping for is over time, hopefully you develop a positive enough reputation that people start reaching out to you. Uh, and we've been lucky that we've had some people uh, reach out to us. And, uh, you know, it's been an opportunity for us to get involved with some exciting cases. So you've argued a couple cases at the Supreme Court now. Tell us a little bit about your experience. 
So, yep, I argued two, both in the same term, both about a month apart from each other. <laughs> wow. Uh, so terrifying is the word that comes to <laughs> mind first. Uh, you think to yourself, having clerked there, that I'm familiar with the building, I'm familiar with the the people, the faces, <laughs> and then you get there in the room on the first day, and at least for me, you know, panic sets in, uh, and it probably set in well before the, the morning. Uh, it's ex- it was exciting. Uh, the first one was a case Spokio v. Robbins. Um, it was you know an active bench. Uh, my v- most vivid memory was walking into the into the well uh, before argument and seeing my mother uh, <laughs> sitting rather close <laughs> and sort of staring at me, and I, this is not. This is not going to work. This is, this is too weird. And I'm, so I, I, I said to her, I said, can you slide behind one of the marble columns so I can't see you? And she says, but then I can't see the argument. And I said, that's really not my priority right now. <laughs> like, so I got yelled at by my mother. Sorry, right mom. Before, right, sorry, mom. But I was, it was really unnerving, to be honest. Um, and then when you get into argument, and I, and I reached out to you know experienced members of the bar who were really generous with their time. And you know who walked me through it and gave me some great advice. I won't, I won't uh, name them to you know. But uh, there were some people who were very generous to me, and they said, you know, you're going to be very nervous when you stand up. You're going to hear your own voice, and you're going to be thinking to yourself, "That's my voice in the Supreme Court," and that'll last for about thirty seconds. And then you're going to get the first question, and then you'll be back into what you're used to, which is you know, an oral argument. And uh, you know, that really was quite right. It was. Uh, nerve wracking until that first question came. And then it was, uh, you know, I want to win. I want to do well. I want to, I want to give good answers to the justice questions. So that, that was the first one. The second one, I think, I think it was, you know, much different for me. Uh, I felt much more relaxed. I felt you have a routine already. You understand the stuff that leads up to argument. Uh, and so still nervous and wanting to do well, but a, a diff, very different than the first one. Do you have any lucky socks or anything like that? <laughs> uh, Argument no. boots? I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm routine oriented. So it's more about, you know, getting at the court at a certain time, uh-huh. go to the cafeteria, sit down, be extra early, you know, that that kind of a thing. But no, uh, I save all that stuff for making sure my football team wins. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, dead or living, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Um... So I would probably go with Taft. Um, oh, bold choice. Okay. Uh, so obviously an interesting life, you know, president, chief justice, not a bad resume. <laughs> I think uh, he wrote an opinion that meant a lot to me, uh, Myers against the United States, in formulating my own views of the law. I would probably say it was the most important, you know, that and probably Justice Scalia's dissent in Morrison against Olson were the, probably the two when I was in law school that impacted me the most in terms of trying to figure out how I approach the law, um, how I think about it. Um, he's actually, he was actually underappreciated in terms of his scholarship outside the court. He gave a series of speeches on executive power when he was at Yale that I think are really important and really interesting. Um, he built the court. I mean, it's just, <laughs> an, it's just an amazing life. That would probably be one that I'd be interested in having. That's a good choice. Good answer. So as many of our listeners know, the Supreme Court canceled the upcoming oral argument in the travel ban case now that the administration announced a new order. This this new one restricts travel from five of the six countries from the old order. So Sudan is now off the hook. And it added Chad, North Korea, and Venezuela to the list. I guess you'd call this travel ban 3.0. The court asked the parties to file briefs addressing whether the case is now moot. 
The issues previously before the court regarding the old travel ban were whether it discriminates against Muslims and whether it exceeds the president's authority over who may enter the country. So, Will, we wanted to sort of pick your brain a little bit about this. Um, Do you think the new order fixed some of the perceived problems with the old one? And does it make the current challenge at the court moot? So I think whether it fixed it is who you ask um, (laughs) and what your theory of the case was. Uh, I think the courts of appeals seem to be rejecting this idea of what people are calling forever taint, meaning because there is an argument people have made that because the initial executive order, EO1, was you know allegedly purportedly motivated by animus, that that could never be fixed. Now, if you accept that argument, you know, then I think uh, it probably, in, your, in someone's view, doesn't. If you reject that argument, um, I think as we've gone on, it's become increasingly difficult to characterize this as a Muslim ban. I mean, if you take a step back, and I, in all disclosure, I wrote an amicus brief uh, in support of the administration uh, on this issue, so I am uh, in the case. Uh, but the, the theory was this was the president's plan to have a Muslim ban in this country. Um, Okay, that's the argument, and I think the judges, you know, compared it to Korematsu, uh, and you know, very harsh rhetoric. So, what happened since then? Uh, one, the EO was re- revised to fix some of the perceived problems already. Two, uh, the named plaintiffs, two of the key plaintiffs, John Doe one in the Fourth Circuit and the doctor in the Ninth, who claimed that their family members were not being admitted and that was their injury. Those family members were admitted while the EO was in place. And now they've issued an executive order that whether you think it's legal as a statutory matter uh, or not, uh, it's hard to argue that one that it goes after Venezuela and North Korea yeah. doesn't look like a Muslim ban to me. <laughs> so I'm sure people will make arguments otherwise and and you know they should. But um, I think one of the problems here is that the rhetoric got ahead of the law mm-hmm. um, and the law is finally catching up. So as you mentioned, you filed an amicus brief in the case, and it focused on uh, the use of campaign statements to ascertain the government's motives. So tell us why that's improper. Well, it's improper for many reasons. <laughs> I think uh, as a matter of precedent, I think it's it's foreclosed by the court's cases in this area. And I don't want to bore everyone with the <laughs> arguing about precedent. You'll hear plenty of that if the case gets argued and it's all over the briefing. Uh, but if you just take a more practical approach to it, I do think we have to be careful when you're dealing with official acts. Here it's the act of the office of the president. That's not a person. That's an office under the Constitution. Uh, and you're attributing uh, those acts to statements made by a private citizen. Yes, I understand the idea that that's a fiction. It's the same person who was the candidate who becomes the president. But the law is built on these kinds of distinctions. And so I worry that making this leap, uh, where does it end? Okay, Uh, we could all go back and cherry pick campaign statements by various presidents uh, when they were running for office or reelection where they made statements that that look like they're prejudicial toward one group or another, whether it be Christians uh, or gun owners or anyone else. Are we willing to, you know, take that all the way to its logical conclusion. Now, I suppose others would say, well, yes, but those are losing cases. There's not enough evidence of animus there. Um, But we're going to be litigating it. It's a 
it'll become a fact issue. Uh, they sought here in this case depositions. They sought massive discovery. That would happen in those cases too. Um, I just think, and then there's reliability questions. You know, uh, I think at one point we're down to Mayor Giuliani's statement on a news program about a conversation he had with the president in which he explained to the president what they were doing and the president said something back to him. And this is the evidence on which we're going to decide whether the office of the president essentially misrepresented what they were doing in an executive order. That just doesn't make sense to me. So when, if ever, is it permissible for a court to look beyond the text of a law that it's reviewing? So that's a question that probably takes longer than the time we have. <laughs> uh, I think the I think where the law is the law with a capital L um, is that it depends on the context in which you're addressing it, and you can't lose that context. This is an executive order issued in the context of national security. Even if you think that in a uh, you know you know normal ordinary discrimination case. Uh, where you're looking for evidence of pretext or motive, you can look at, say, legislative history, city council meetings, uh, statements by people in the press. Like, I'm not stipulating that you should or you shouldn't. I'm saying even assuming that you should, there's every reason not to do it here. This is the outermost edge. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I could give you a perfect formulation about when it's a pro I could tell you what the law, the cases say. <laughs> uh, and the cases say, sometimes you can, you need to be careful. You need to make sure that they're attributable to the person who's in charge of make, you know, making the law official. So are we talking about executive action? Are we talking about legislative action? Are we talking about sometimes private action where people are subject to these tests, even though they're private actors? So the so-called Arlington Heights uh, test. So I can't give you an all or nothing answer. All I can tell <laughs> you that is even if you think it's appropriate in every other context, it's still not appropriate here. So the challengers claim that the the old ban uh, violates the establishment clause. Can you explain the basis of this this argument? Yeah, um, essentially, it is using the, what's called the lemon test, which is did the action have the primary purpose of uh, establishing a religion, favoring a religion, or disfavoring religion? Uh, and under that test, they claim that you can look at the kinds of statements we're talking about here, and they say when you do. Uh, you will find that the reason for this ban was not national security, but animus toward Muslims and a desire to keep them out of the country. That's the argument distilled, as I understand it. So the government argues that the president is acting at the maximum of his authority because Congress delegated the ability to suspend entry of classes of aliens abroad under the Immigration and Nationality Act. And the president is also acting under his inherent power over foreign affairs. So this seems pretty straightforward. What's the argument against this? There are a number of arguments against it, none of which I made. But, <laughs> but uh, the arguments are that, first of all, there's, a, there's, a, there's competing constitutional arguments here. There are some people who think the president is at the apex of authority here. This is national security. This is controlling entry. This is foreign affairs. That's one set of arguments. The other set is Congress is generally in charge of uh, immigration. That's power vested by them in the Constitution. And so is Congress delegating away too much of its authority? There's a thread of that in the briefs. Uh, or... Um, is the president exercising authority that belongs to a coordinate branch? There's a threat of that in the briefs. Ultimately, neither side really commits entirely to those arguments. They play a little bit more in the background in terms of which way we should nudge the law in this case, as opposed to whether it's going to be decisive. 
But I do think it plays in the background. And I do think how you approach these kinds of separation of powers issues, for lack of a better category to put them in, does bear on how you view what's going on here. And as a follow up, this this idea of the president having maximum authority comes from Justice Robert Jackson's concurring opinion in the steel seizure case from the Korean War, Youngstown Sheet and Tube uh, Company against Sawyer. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Clarence Thomas edition. Oh, no. Where we're going to try to stump our guest, Will Consovoy. This is going to be bad. Okay. Are we ready? No. Go. (laughs) First question. This should be an easy one. Okay. Who did Justice Thomas replace on the Supreme Court? Thurgood Marshall. That is correct. Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black Supreme Court justice. Uh, And we are pleased to report that now both of them are featured in the Smithsonian Museum of African American History. Finally. A serious oversight for the last year. Uh, second question: What logo is on Justice Thomas's iPhone case? I'm going to think it's Nebraska. That's right. It's the yes. Nebraska Cornhuskers. It's well known that that's his favorite team. It is well known. <laughs> Third question: What profession did Clarence Thomas originally intend to go into? Seminary. That is correct. Yes. He entered the seminary in Missouri, but changed his mind after Martin Luther King was shot. Uh, so on one of these trips that you mentioned to Gettysburg, someone ran up to Justice Thomas and asked him to sign a copy of his opinion in what case? Oh, I'm terrible with case names. I don't know it. <laughs> but I think it was a tax case. Mm, no? It was the Federal Maritime Commission against South Carolina oh, State right. Ports Authority. Okay. <laughs> so the man ran up to him in Gettysburg and said, I read all your opinions because I can understand them. I think I get that right. I get credit. For bo- it was a boring case. It was a boring case. Yes, yes. I'm taking, I'm taking boring case partial credit. Well, par- I think at least partial credit. <laughs> Who goes around carrying copies of opinions in case they run into justices? Of really I mean, obscure opinions. I, I do that with should- my pocket constitution, but an opinion is like much bigger and... Yeah, we, we maybe we should uh, produce uh, pocket Clarence Thomas opinions at the Heritage Foundation. I'm worried that yeah. you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so next question. Last year, Justice Thomas asked a question at oral argument for the first time in 10 years. Can you tell us what case it was? Not the name, but the issue was uh, felon disenfranchisement uh, right over uh, Second Second Amendment. That is correct. It was Voisin versus United States. Whether a prior misdemeanor domestic assault conviction would block plaintiffs from possessing a firearm. And here's what Thomas said for the first time in 10 years. Uh, This is a misdemeanor violation. It suspends a constitutional right. Can you give me another area where a misdemeanor violation suspends a constitutional right? A very good question, I think. I agree. Uh, Next question. What movies does Justice Thomas show his clerks every year? So it it changes. it has changed, but Fountainhead is a staple. Uh, my year, we also watched 300. I don't know if he's doing that every year or not. That That's what we have down. Fountainhead, that's, yes, based what our on intel told us. Okay. <laughs> Ayn Rand's book and 300 about the, yeah. um, the battle at Thermopylae. Final question. What kind of pet does Justice Thomas have? And we'll give you a bonus half point if you know the pet's name. So your intel's a little old because there's now two dogs. <laughs> Uh, there's Petey, and I don't know 
the new one, and I'm hope Mrs. Thomas isn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> Man, our our sources are are out of date. We need we need better sources, or maybe we should use Will as a source. Yeah. Uh, that's correct. Petey is a uh, King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, and we'll have to um, get some intel on what the other the other dog is. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you did a great job on on your questions. Uh, I think you got half of one wrong, so I think that's pretty well done. <laughs> so thanks I'll to our it. guest, Will Consovoy, and thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple podcast or stitcher and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening please follow us on twitter at scotus 101 you can also email us at scotus 101 at heritage.org with questions comments or ideas for future episodes